Welcome to Nobel Prize Conversations and this encore presentation of our April 2014 talk with chemistry laureate Mario Molina. I'm Claire Brilliant and I'm here with our host Adam Smith. Hi Adam. Hi Claire. With 1995 chemistry laureate Mario Molina, we wrap up our series of six classic podcasts. And hasn't it been interesting to hear this variety of podcasts from the past? Some of them are completely timeless, but others seem to have aged considerably in 10 years. And how is it to listen to yourself now, 10 years later? <laughs> well, maybe I'm one of the more things that hasn't aged so well over the 10 years. <laughs> it's, it's strange because um, you sort of think you're the same. Uh, not, you know, you don't change. But actually, when you listen to yourself and the questions you ask, you think, gosh, things are a bit different. It was a, you know, the past is a different country, as uh, L.P. Hartley said in uh, The Go-Between. <laughs> and um, and uh, it, it really can bring it home. Mm. And when you spoke to Mario in 2014, he'd already been living with the prize for nearly 20 years. And he'd really embraced a role as, as a leader in communicating about climate change. In this episode, you spend quite a lot of time talking about a 2014 paper called What We Know. And then you and I actually had the privilege of meeting Mario when we attended an event with him in 2018. I was really struck by his positivity, despite some of the enormous challenges posed by climate change. He was extremely good, wasn't he, at, at, at getting that optimism across uh, in, in 2018. I remember, you know, you, audiences um, had become more worried about climate change than they were back in 2014 when we uh, recorded this. Mm. Um, uh, but they they seemed to come out of his, his talks uh, more optimistic than they were when they went in, which is a, an incredible achievement. He was talking about such a difficult and I guess, you know, to, to most people, scary subject, but somehow you came out with a message of hope. And I, and I think that does come across in, in this interview as well. Sadly, Mario Molina is no longer with us as he died in 2020. Mm. But do you think the messages from this podcast are still relevant today? The world doesn't see many people like Mario Molina with such optimism and the engaging power to convince people to come together. I, I really think that for that reason, this podcast stands the test of time and deserves another listen. It's really worth taking seriously what Mario Molina has to say. So let's listen to this encore presentation, the last in our series with Mario Molina. Hello. To start out, um, so you have just um, released from the American Academy for the Advancement of Science this new report called What We Know, which you have chaired. Right. And um, this is another report on global warming. And there have been many reports on global warming, of course. So can you tell me what's the, what's the need for this new report? Yeah, the purpose is not really to issue a new report. It is to communicate with the public at large, particularly in the United States, in, in a more efficient way. Way so the, the, we're not seeking to bring the science up to date or anything like that. We're just uh, attempting to uh, to have a better communication strategy, highlighting uh, just a, a few steps, maybe three at most four. And so the, the report is just the background, so that it's uh, documented where this comes from. But the main work to be done will be to somehow or other through the media and interviews uh, 
just to stress briefly these three or four important points okay. about climate change that we want the public to be aware of. So, so it's clarifying the message. It's just trying it's clarifying the message. We're working with professional communicators, understanding that we scientists often do not communicate <laughs> well. So that's that's the main purpose and, and difference from from other reports. <laughs> and so the the choice of the choice of title is very um, is very apposite. Then what we know it's just trying to communicate in simple, straightforward language what is currently understood about global warming. Is that right? That's right. Okay. And what it, what is currently understood? What's the main message? Well, the the, the main message is that the the that there is a very clear consensus among experts, uh, and we quote numbers like more than ninety ninety seven percent of uh, climate change experts agree that climate change is uh, taking place and and it is most likely of human origin. Mm-hmm. Okay, so that's the main message, and then. Uh, Second message is that it's already happening. It's not just something for the end of the century. And the third, perhaps, what is the newer message, if you want, is that we are dealing with risks. We are not necessarily worried mostly about the the most likely chain of events, but that the but working with economists in particular, we reached the conclusion that the, 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 the society should, should react based on, the, on, on risks, namely that there will be some abrupt changes with very important consequences for uh, society at large or for many groups, if you want, mm. that the risks that are unacceptable, and even, even if they are not... Uh, very likely, if you have something of a 10 or 20 percent risk or more of, of a real calamities to happen, that's, that should be uh, avoided. And, and the science is rather uncertain about this, but it, it certainly, uh, this is based on science, on scientific insights and, and so on, that uh, these uh, changes can indeed happened. And perhaps the fourth and also important message is that we can deal with this. We can do something about this in contrast to uh, sort of ideas that have been spread out that oh, this would be just incredibly expensive and we cannot stop in any way using fossil fuels. So that, that's, we believe that's a wrong message. The message is that we can deal with the problem at a reasonable cost, certainly smaller than but it would cost to shoot some of these uh, abrupt changes mm. that take mm. place. That's a, that's, a, that's a hopeful message to end with. That's uh, right, yeah. Um, okay, so there's a lot in there. There's, um, I mean, if we start, first of all, with this idea of climate change is happening and it is most likely caused by human activity, there, mm-hmm. a, a lot of people seem to get quite hung up on that most likely piece and say, well, maybe it's something we're doing or maybe it's something we're not doing. And that seems to stop other action. That, you know, the, the, the conversation can in a way stop there. 
What, why do you think everybody's got so excited by this question of whether or not it is truly anthropogenic? Uh, when we elaborate on this, we use metaphors. Okay? So when you drive your car, you wear seat belts and have airbags, uh, and not because it's you have a certainty that you will crash. <laughs> and so there are so many things that, along these lines so uh, that, that prompts society to act. If you have a tumor and your physician tells you, oh, it's, there's only 80% chance that it's cancer, just don't worry about it, go home. I mean, I mean, that, it's, it doesn't make any sense to require certainty. But we clarify that indeed that science is, that it's a complex system, and we have a very conservative, if you want, group of scientists behind this uh, uh, report precisely uh, to, to be able to document mm. these statements. Okay, it, it, There have been lots of exaggerations and uh, unclear statements precisely because they were worried about people misunderstanding the the message and and scientists uh, are just not happy with uh, uh, making statements that are actually not correct. Okay. Mm. Mm. Sure. Yeah. So, but so we so yes, we we're very used to dealing with uncertainty in our own lives, um, and yet on the climate change issue, as I say, there seems to be more scope for the discussion of where, of the importance of that certainty i mean you have the you, for instance you have the well publicized climate change skeptics who seem to right. who seem to ha hold a lot of public opinion i mean have a lot of public interest in them that people listen to them and right. and that and that's odd in a way sure sure yeah we, we of course we're very much aware of that that's why we want to give out a clear message and and as needed, explain it with uh, with metaphors. Let me give you a more even even a more striking example is extreme events that we're worried about. That but that's bringing climate change closer to home for many people. Okay, there's the metaphor we use is here in the USA for baseball games. If uh, what. Uh, it's clear that at some point, some of the best-known players were taking some drugs. Okay, so okay, so there are many more home runs, but you cannot assign any particular home run to because somebody took some drugs. All you can say is that the likelihood of having home runs clearly increased, and that's what's happening with extreme events. We cannot attribute any particular one to climate change. Mm. So, so that, that's even less certain, if you want, but the, overall the statistics is clear. But uh, the idea that you need certainty, is, is that something we want to, to explain? And there are so many other examples that society, making all sorts of political decisions, there's almost never certainty but with health issues mm. as well. Mm. Okay, so so it's why should you, why should, would one would one want to have certainty with something so clearly worrisome? 
that it would be so much against society's uh, reasonable way of acting to mm. to ignore this uh, threat. Mm. But then, so, so, but do you have an answer to the question of why that has become such an issue? Do you know? Have you have you an understanding of what it is that? Is stopping people accepting the idea that? Oh, oh yes, we we know that there was a very well financed public media campaign from uh, interest groups, and we also know that there there are some partisan issues. It uh, has to do with politics. The issue became polarized, and it's a worry with uh, particularly with the Republican Party in the United States at at some point took. Extreme positions, but see that those extreme positions—they uh, are not questioning whether it's likely or not. They are simply claiming that this is all a hoax and that uh, it's just because the scientists want more <laughs> money and so on. So that's why, uh, in this case, we also stress that this is the consensus of experts and also of well-established scientific groups, the national academies. As a professional society, so on, uh, you have to claim that all of science is corrupt, and that begins to be sort of crazy. <laughs> yes. Even the, the the enormous impact that science has had on on our lives. Okay. But yes, that that there there is a whole range of of uh, reasons behind skepticism. Okay. And perhaps we are we, we we can address them all as as needed, but the most worrisome one is just the, perhaps the one that said oh it's it's not it it's so uncertain that scientists do not agree no that that's the main that's why that's the first message scientists do agree that it's happening that it's real, and they do agree that it's a big risk mm. 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 so so that's <laughs> That's the point, perhaps. I know it's a challenge, yeah. Mm. Uh, And is it, you mentioned that this is directed particularly at the American public. Is is this, and I guess American institutions as well, is this this a particular problem, do you think, for America? Is the the acceptance of the evidence harder in America than elsewhere? Yes, but this is, this, of course, we no longer elaborate in the, in these documents and so on. But what is clear in terms of uh, assessing what needs to be done about these problems, it's clear that uh, one of the best solutions would be to have an international agreement that would put a price on emissions. Mm -hmm. By the way, just stepping back for a moment, we don't prescribe with these reports or messages. They're not prescriptive. They just say, let's put it on the table and, and let society take it seriously, discuss what to do. But coming back to your question, it's clear that the main bottleneck for this international agreement at the moment is U.S. Congress, because they will certainly not ratify any international agreement dealing with climate change because of the official posture of the Republican Party that is, uh, of course, without their approval, you would not, you cannot pass you cannot ratify an international agreement. And their official posture is that uh, is to deny climate change science. I, I, my reasoning is that it, it's 
something equivalent to still living in, in, in the age of astrology. And so that's unacceptable for any rational society, and I hope this, for these reasons, if we make the message clear, uh, we, we should be able to bring uh, the rationality to the system. But that's, that's the reason why the United States is particularly worrisome. It's international political arena. We certainly know that countries like China, India, and so on are, are very important for disagreements as well, but we have indications that they would be willing to move much further ahead in terms of this sort of international agreements than uh, uh, at least than, than the United States at the moment. Okay. So, so that's the bottleneck in mm. terms of coming with a real solution to the problem. That that anti-science stance, in this case of you know of the Republican Party, is is a very peculiar thing because I mean of course there are part I suppose it's partly vested interests causing one to have that right. policy, but but it's also a, a, an antagonistic attitude to science itself, right? And that's uh, uh, I mean it's been pointed out by others that um, the number of scientists within. Uh, the political system is extremely small, or perhaps even <laughs> zero. Right. Um, but the um, but it's just it on the face of it, it just seems ludicrous that one would have an antagonistic attitude towards the practice of science. Right. Yes, and it is that's why there's such a strong division because it it in in fact some Republicans tend to agree, it's just that they are at the moment compelled to take the party line. Okay? And mm. that's beginning to change. There's, there are beginning to be some very important divisions within the Republican Party, the first point. Second point, we work with many uh, Republicans that are not now in Congress but, but were in, in, in government before, and, and many of them very much agree with our uh, conclusions. In fact, and many important decisions connected with the environmental problems and global environmental problems as well were carried out with, with uh, uh, Republican administrations. Okay. So one other one point that we are also bringing forward that appears to appeal to the public in the United States is we've done this before. The United States has been a leader in. <laughs> in, with many environmental issues, and, and, and of course, with the, one example is the stratospheric ozone issue with, that I was involved with, and there, it's one global problem has been solved very efficiently with leadership from the United States, from Republicans. So, so it, it has happened before. Sorry to dwell on this question of why people find it hard to just accept that action is needed. But is it also the magnitude of the problem that it just people just feel completely overwhelmed by? That, that's sure. And that's why one of the messages, one of the important messages is that that's, yes, it is a challenge, but we are not suggesting uh, some on very expensive changes. We, this has been carefully analysed again by experts, by economists and and we, we can certainly deal with it. it it's, it's an enormous challenge, but it is, it, it's something that, again, is striking, that it's not an enormous cost. 
because with creativity and with technologies for clean energies being further and further developed, we do have examples of, of uh, things that are already happening that would bring us to a solution of this problem, or at least a, a clear indication of the, of the, the right path. Okay, so we're, we don't have to speculate that this is something that perhaps society could actually deal with. We, we, we can cite specific examples. And then I wanted to move on to this question of risk you mentioned, that there are, right. the, there are the kind of the gradual changes that we're already observing, but then there is, you're pointing out that there are a risk of truly catastrophic events ahead. Mm -hmm. Tell me more about those. Okay. Well, one worry we had is for the scientific uh, community to perceive this as alarmist and so on. But that, so that's why we don't even use the word catastrophe <laughs> in the document. It's very carefully <laughs> avoided, but it's the equivalent, okay, that you would have extremely damaging events. But the risk is is based on science. We have indications of uh, changes in climate in the past, and we have very clear indications that the, there's more energy in the system now. And so on. so, so the, the, it is not sheer speculation. This, the, the existence of risk is based uh, on science. And we are very much aware that it's one of those issues that is hard to communicate to the public because they are often very ill-informed about the nature of risks. Okay? And this is where the, our work with professional communicators is also very helpful because they can measure and probe how do people react to, 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 all, to these various sorts of statements and what's the normal conception they have about risk. And it's, they, they don't have a good quantification of, of risks. Okay? They, if it's uh, small or large, they often just get confused. Mm. So, we are, again, perhaps through metaphors or so, through examples, we can explain why is it very important for society to take some sort of insurance, if you want. That's one way to explain it to them, for risks that are uh, real, and that's quite reasonable and accepted by people in general, that it is very quite acceptable to, uh, to spend some resources on insurance uh, because it has paid off yeah. clearly in the past. Sure. What's an example of the sort of thing that we're insuring against, do you think? We should... okay. Here, here we're, we're again very careful and we cite and quote some studies like the National Academy study or some IPCC studies that are actually quite conservative here, but examples would be, say, that the, the, the drying up of the Amazon forest okay, or changes in the ocean circulation. And here a conclusion is the following, that once scientists begin to look very carefully at some of these specific uh, possibilities, they turn out not to be very likely. So the main uh, worry remains surprises. <laughs> That's why we don't want to give many very specific examples of things to worry about without the statement, look, yes, once we identify this, 
large releases of methane from permafrost or so. Sure, the, these are all feasible. It doesn't, those do not seem very likely, but we are, we have so much experience with, with surprises, even the extreme events, okay, were not quite expected and they are happening already. Mm. So that's a, it's, uh, I realize it's, it's a difficult issue to, to communicate, but again, we want to be very honest and not uh, put on the table uh, issues or, or possibilities that have already been uh, carefully examined. There are, on the other hand, on, uh, issues such as the, the rising sea levels that are happening and happening faster than anticipated with very clear consequences that are already materializing because once you have higher sea level, then uh, if, if you have a bad uh, weather or hurricane storms and coastal areas, they, they become much more damaging. Mm. With, even if there's just a relatively small increase in sea level. Yeah. But that's one of the main worries, if you want. Mm. I can see it's a very difficult situation because... Yes, if, if you elaborate specific risks and they don't come to pass, then people on the other side of the fence will turn around and say, ha, that didn't happen, you see, it's all wrong. And in a way, that's the permanent problem, I suppose, you face, that you're trying to be very measured and precise in what you say, and the people who are arguing against you don't have that limitation. So they can just pull, if they want, anything out of the air and say, look, climate change scientists say that this is going to happen. Well, it's not happening, so it's all wrong, which obviously doesn't right. which doesn't hold up as an argument, but it's good as a soundbite. That's right. But well, that's why, in, in the end, we, we first of all, we make a strong case that, that the climate is indeed changing because skeptics until perhaps very recently were claiming that, oh, it's, uh, it's actually the, 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 the climate goes up and down and so on. So that, that part is clear and that part uh, there is consensus. But the second point, in some sense, we try to rely on the, on the record and the honesty of the, that is established in, in, in many other areas of the experts, the scientific community and so on. And if necessary, we can certainly have debates or do whatever is needed with people that claim to be experts on the other side. But for the public in general, we believe we don't need to sort of uh, do the science, mm. the complicated science in great detail. We just need to make the case that the science is clear no? mm. about the risk. And so what do, you, what do you hope the report will achieve? What do you hope will be the result? The result, we hope, is that uh, the polls will begin to show a shift, which is happening already, okay, but it w we will push the shift in, the, in, the, in public opinion. And it's happening already because of uh, extreme events that are people just until recently were, oh, this is just a worry for future generations, which it doesn't affect us at all. But there are so many people already being affected that uh, there is a change in perception, but we believe if we, for the first time, if you want to, an organized uh, public relations campaign comparable to the one that was carried out, well-financed and so on, 
uh, on the other side, mm. that we will have an impact on, on public opinion. And hence, subsequently, on, on, uh, uh, on the perception of uh, politicians about this, of course, because they, they count on public opinion often to, mm. to support their, their decisions. So, so it, uh, we realize that it's not something that's going to happen immediately, but uh, we believe that if a world carried out campaign can in fact move, move the, the, the results of the poll. When you compare this problem to the one um, you worked on earlier, um, mm-hmm. the, on CFCs and reducing, eliminating CFC emissions or reducing them, does was the same kind of publicity campaign required for that, or was there just an easier acceptance? It, it was easier because, of course, energy is behind so many activities of society that that that's clearly uh, more difficult than it, uh, and behind economic growth and so on. So we had an easier time with the CFCs, but fortunately, we were able to act before it became polarized or politicized. We, we did not have this division along party lines materializing. We were able to act before that. And uh, public opinion was important, but but it was really the opinion of decision makers, leaders in government that uh, was able to make things uh, sufficiently important to reach an international agreement. Okay. Hmm. So we were not really counting there on public opinion driving the the, the solution to the problem, mm. but it it was certainly part of it. Whoever had looked at it and so on, it it, it supported. And there were of course uh, skeptics as well. I mean, and another very important difference, if you want, is that we were able to work with industry. At the beginning, they were skeptics, of course. But after afterwards, the, the science became very clear, and so the industrial sector collaborated with us. And by the way, what's happening now with climate change is not that the private sector is against it. It's just some interest groups in the private sector are against it, but some others are in favor. So that's another thing we will try to take advantage of, that we can work with powerful groups as well that uh, understand the problem. And so not all the business-minded people, if you want, uh, think that the problem is a hoax. Mm. Mm. But, uh, but again, there, there we, we clearly had an advantage with the stratospheric ozone issue in that uh, at some point, all, essentially all of industry was behind uh, the solution to the mm. problem. And if you can achieve this change in or that you can help to achieve this ongoing change in the public opinion in the states. That's part of the battle. Do you think that in the long term, the combination of a developed world already um, sort of at high levels of energy usage and an emerging world using more and more energy as time goes on can reach a solution and in fact act concertedly to prevent truly damaging global warming? Uh, yes, that, that's of course a very important question. We believe that it's possible, 
but it will require further developments in, in technology so that uh, uh, the options to to use less fossil fuel become also more economically attractive. And that, that's happening. There is a clear tendency for clean energies to to become cheaper. So per, perhaps two points here to make. One is we're very much aware of the need of many, of, of a good section of the global population that is not, doesn't have access to uh, energy. In, in that, 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 that's a high priority also. But at, the mo at least for the near future, that would not be, even if they were to use fossil fuels or wood or so, that, that's, that would not detract from the from the main effort of the rest of the countries. Mm. And so we are very willing to to promote uh, access to energy for, for poor populations. Obviously, we're not suggesting that there should be zero emissions and so on. We're just suggesting to, to do the, uh, the most uh, efficient way to do it. And by the way, this, this, these questions are no longer part of this report or so. That's we're suggesting let's put all of this on the table and have experts continue discussing that. Mm. But anyhow, the second point is that, yes, there, although there are still some problems ahead, we should put everything on the table. Carbon capture, for example, and storage is at the moment just too expensive, but perhaps in the future it might be feasible. And uh, maybe one, one of the more controversial possibilities, which we do not deal with in this particular report, also is nuclear energy, because that has a very safe historical record. In spite of Fukushima, we know that was a, a, a big problem in time. But it it's a form of energy that exists. The price keeps coming down, and it's it's not uh, that high, in fact, according to the some the recent studies. And it is uh, it's available, and the hope is that we will again with time develop even safer technologies. But again, the point there with nuclear energy is that uh, it's again the historical fact that it has worked uh, with relatively little problem compared to fossil fuels mm. and other forms of Yes, that. yes. And it's again down to this perception of risk. That's right. So you find yourself at the forefront of um, arguments about global climate. As a child, I, you, were a, you were a very scientifically interested child, were you not? That's right, yes, yes. Uh, what form did your scientific ex explorations take? Well, I, as, when I was a, a child, quite, quite young, 10 years old or so, I was already quite interested. I like to read and read the uh, biographies of scientists and so on, and, and then started to play with uh, chemistry sets, microscopes, and I was fascinated with... Uh, with these uh, games, if you want, and so I, and then I, I just continued. It, it, it was not something connected to school, but just as a, it was more connected to, as a hobby. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like the use of the word games. That, that <laughs> <laughs> it, 
Was it the tools that you enjoyed? Was it the questions you enjoyed? What was behind it? It, it was the, probably the questions and doing experiments myself. Mm. Uh, I was lucky when, when I had an aunt, when my father's sister was a chemist. And after I showed a lot of interest in these things, she helped me do more sophisticated experiments. So to me, that was just fascinating to actually see things with my own eyes and do the experiments with my own hands. Okay. And so it's this active learning, mm. which, by the way, is a tendency nowadays to change education quite dramatically, to have kids do these sort of things rather than just memorizing. Okay. And so this natural curiosity that we have as children, just uh, looking through a microscope and suddenly discovering a new world there with all sorts of little creatures moving that you don't see with your naked eyes. Okay, That sort of thing was fascinating to me. I had a, a number of good teachers that were sympathetic, if you want to, to this uh, attitude towards science. And uh, until eventually I, I, this could materialize, I had decided as a child if it was possible to become a scientist and to do scientific research for a living or as a hobby, that's what I wanted to do. <laughs> You had your aunt who was influencing you, and your parents were nurturing? They they gave you the space my, you needed? My parents were nurturing. They were, they were not scientists. My father was a lawyer, but they nurtured it. They gave me the... They supported my interest. Yes. <laughs> and did you ever contemplate any other career? I did. I, as a, again, as a, as a kid, I liked music. I still like it a lot, of course, and, and I used to play the violin. <laughs> and so my... I, I did contemplate, well, maybe that's a, an option. I could become a musician. And somehow or other, my parents got some advice that unless I were, I was willing to spend eight or ten hours a day just playing the violin, that I should just give it up. And to me, that was very bad advice because you, you could, of course, get very involved in, in music without being a musician. Okay, fortunately, I, I mean, even though I had, I gave up eventually playing the violin myself. I never gave up my fondness for music, but uh, if I had a chance again, I would not give it up. I would just uh, do it uh, as a hobby. Mm. So I, I think that was just because I did not get uh, correct advice. Mm. Fortunately, that didn't affect at least uh, uh, learning and listening to music. <laughs> That's true. You were brought up, what, in Mexico, but also travelling around? Uh, yes, actually, as, as a child, because of this interest I had in the sciences, my parents sent me to Switzerland for a couple of years How old? to learn German. Oh. How old were you? I was probably 11. Or, yeah. So this was to, to just a boarding school. And it was a very good experience. Because, again, my chemistry teacher in, in Switzerland was it's, uh, somebody I got along very well with and did experiments. The disappointment I had, and which fortunately was not serious, is I thought, aha, now that I'm going to Europe, all my friends will also be like me and they like science a lot. And they were just like my Mexican friends. Okay. I, uh, of course, I had normal friends and played and did things, but my friends at that age did not like... Uh, anything connected to school. Okay. <laughs> so 
again in Europe it was uh, something I did on my own or with my teachers, not with my friends. That happened much later, eventually just in college or actually when I started college and the PhD, that's when you begin to, of course, share all this interest in science with, with your colleagues. But as a child, it was very much a lonely activity <laughs> because, again, of the, the, the normal situation that I hope is changing now of uh, children just disliking school and disliking science because it's just memorizing all sorts of facts and very boring. Okay. Mm. Yes, the opposite of what it is, really. But the Exactly, yes. <laughs> but that does indicate you were quite a precocious child then, that you were so turned on to science by the age of 11 that you were sent to a school to nurture those interests. That's unusual. <laughs> well, my my parents had a sort of tradition. They wanted to send, send us and my brothers and sisters uh, abroad as young kids to learn a lot of, another language and to be exposed to another culture. So I was very lucky to be part of that. Mm. Yeah. But in my case, of course, very much along the, the lines, as you just mentioned, of, of uh, pursuing my interest in science. Mm. You obviously f um, feel very tied to Mexico, and now you divide your time between the United States and Mexico. That's right. That's right. Is that a hard balance to manage? Well, it is, but for many years, again, I, when I was, for example, just at, at MIT, a researcher, then I, I went to Mexico just for vacations and so on. But at some point, I started to do some work with my MIT colleagues uh, that was connected with air quality in Mexico City, mm. because we wanted to do something very interdisciplinary, not just involving science, but also policy, economics, and so on. And that was remarkably successful because we got our students very interested in this interdisciplinary approach to social problems. Hmm. It, uh, of course, making sure that their basic interest in whatever field they were working uh, uh, remained very strong. Okay. But as a consequence of that, I realized I could, at some stage that I was going to have more impact or, or, or that it was something more satisfactory to do to go back to Mexico and to, to really do some work in my country of origin. And of course, I, I am both a Mexican and an American citizen, and I remain, of course, very much involved with my activities in the United States. The main example perhaps being on this scientific advisory board to to President Obama. Hmm. So I, I think, fortunately for these issues I work with, they are very much international in scope. So it's both to Mexico's and the United States' interest to have this international perspective. Uh, so that's what brings it all together. Take this climate change approach, even though we're focusing it to begin with in the United States, it's something we can expand to Mexico and Latin America as well. But in Mexico, it's really a change in field from science to science policy. The big challenge is how can we change uh, not just uh, uh, regulations and 
and so on, but how can we actually affect the way society functions? It's a big challenge, but we've been able to manage in some cases, like improving air quality in Mexico City and so on. But mm. yes, it is a challenge indeed. Is it a model you can export to other cities, the successful way you've tackled it in Mexico City? Uh, yes, yes. And in fact, we work closely with all the cities, uh, beginning with Latin America. We have some projects where we were simultaneously working also with Bogotá, Santiago in Chile and, uh, and, and so on, mm. and Sao Paulo in Brazil. And so we have a lot to learn from each other. <laughs> but again, there are other examples, other cities, not just in Latin America. And that's beginning to happen. There's a lot of effort. There are associations of cities now, for example, dealing with, with the climate change issue. But in broader terms, in just in, in terms of uh, improving the quality of life, greener cities where transportation works efficiently, uh, and so on and so forth. So this is, this is an international effort that I think is beginning to take uh, that uh, form and becoming stronger and stronger, learning from each other what works. The collaborative approach that, that sort of powers science, but expanded to right. encompass everybody, yes. That's right, that's right. <laughs> so but it's a challenge because it's, you have to deal with society that is hard to change, but if you find the right leaders, then we think it can be moved. Mm. So... It seems to me that in many ways you have transitioned, really, talking of the word leader, from being a practicing scientist to almost a sort of scientific leader. Do you, <laughs> well, first question, do you miss the actual the science or are you so busy leading that it doesn't, that you don't miss it? You don't have time. Well, I, I do miss it. Of course, I was very much involved very early on doing experiments myself, but then later when I having a large group, the experiments were actually carried out by my students. But now, what, the way I looked at it is the, uh, even though I missed, if you want, being totally involved in just uh, fundamental science or, or even applied science, but with, with, with a group of students, many of my former students are doing excellent science now as faculties in very well-known universities and so on. So in some sense, I feel that I was able to keep that going <laughs> and I can do something that has more impact and uh, in some sense a, a larger challenge to this translation of science into policy, which is well, there are relatively few scientists do successfully okay? and it's something we have to educate our students more and more with. So. That's one component is this policy uh, aspect, but the other one is education also, just uh, making sure that the educational system keeps evolving and changing to become more and more effective. Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very important point that on both counts, and uh, I suppose as we were saying earlier, the, the idea that there is so little science in the political system just argues that there needs to be a greater a greater cohort of scientists who want to be involved in politics. That's right. And policy. Sure. I agree. Yeah. Last question. Do you do you yourself think that at some point you might actually enter politics full time? Uh, no, I, I had that option 
some time ago mm-hmm. already just perhaps because of uh, uh, well having a Nobel Prize gives you all sorts of opportunities if you want and a few of my colleagues have done that but no I decided that was not my not the way I could function best and I could probably uh, have more impact do things uh, in a more important fashion remaining outside politics but uh, stressing this connection between science and policy it's a different world if you really become a uh, secretary of energy or whatever there are so many other pressures or secretary of the environment <laughs> that that you, it, it's uh, it's just uh, I decided that was not the way I would be most productive well um, it's been absolutely splendid speaking to you thank you very much indeed for giving me your time well I'm pleased to do that sure okay okay thanks bye now bon voyage This podcast was presented by Nobel Prize Conversations. If you'd like to learn more about Mario Molina, you can go to nobelprize.org, where you'll find a wealth of information about the prizes and the people behind the discoveries. Nobel Prize Conversations is a podcast series with Adam Smith, a co-production of FILT and Nobel Prize Outreach. The producer for Nobel Prize Talks was Magnus Ullier. The editorial team for this Encore production includes Andrew Hart, Olivia Lundquist, and me, Claire Brilliant. Music by Epidemic Sound. You can find previous seasons and conversations on Acast or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening. If you're passionate about the Nobel Prize, you won't want to miss a single episode of our podcast. Be sure to subscribe. We're available on Acast, Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, GeoSarvan, Spotify, and many, many more popular platforms.